Can genuine Christian believers lose their salvation? Can a genuine Christian apostatize? That is, can they abandon and renounce their faith in Jesus Christ? Can a genuine Christian turn away from what they formerly formally believed to be true about the gospel? What God has accomplished in Jesus' death and resurrection for sin and in consequence will accomplish in the new heavens and new earth. Can a Christian, a genuine Christian, turn away from all of that? Now, for obvious reasons, that is a very important question. And historically, it's been a subject of great theological debate because apostasy is a matter wrapped up with the gospel itself. It's wrapped up with the effectiveness of our Lord Jesus' atonement, uh, God's election of a covenant people, his effectual call, and the perseverance of the saints. And some Christians say, yes, certainly, genuine Christians, genuine believers can lose their salvation. And there are several biblical texts appealed to in support of that position. And two of the big ones are found in the book of Hebrews. Uh, chapter 6, verses 4 to 6, and chapter 10, verses 26 to 29. I want us to look at both those passages just for a moment. So we'll turn to Hebrews chapter 6, looking at verses 4 to 6. Actually, there are five passages in the book of Hebrews altogether warning the reader against the sin of apostasy. It is a major theme of this book. Hebrews 6, 4 to 6. It is impossible. Now, now there is a strong word. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Hebrews 10, 26 to 29. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of one or th of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? And, and many Christians would say, well, surely we just have to read those texts without any uh, theological pre-commitments or theological prejudice going into things. And it's perfectly clear that the possibility of genuine believers losing their salvation exists. But other Christians argue, no, a genuine believer can never lose their salvation. And the text they appeal to are passages like Romans 8, 29 to 30, and the unqualified assertions of Jesus himself in John chapter 6. So let's take a look at those texts. Romans 8, 29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. 
Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. And here's, here we see what's called the golden chain of salvation. The Apostle Paul is saying, if you are a justified Christian, a justified believer, if your sin has been forgiven and the righteousness of Jesus has been imputed to you, that means you were first a predestined Christian. You were first foreordained by God to be conformed to the image of his Son in union with him. And you will be a glorified Christian when Jesus returns to earth to consummate his kingdom, which means our salvation is secure. It's cemented in the eternal decree of God. John 6.39. Jesus says this, and, and this certainly sounds like an unqualified statement. John 6.39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he, that is God the Father, has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And I will raise them up at the last day. Verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. So the question is, which position is correct? Can a genuine Christian lose their salvation or can a genuine Christian never lose their salvation? How do we decide between these two different groups of texts? Well, the answer is that we don't. I'm, I'm being perverse, even framing the question the way that I am. It's a trap. <laughs> the error Christians sometimes make in coming to a decision between two seemingly contradictory group of texts, and, and this goes for anywhere in the Bible, uh, not just here on this issue, is that they, they face off like two gunslingers at high noon in an old west town. And when the dust settles, one group of God-exhaled biblical texts are basically left dead in the dust. And the group left standing, who won the gunfight, that they're correct. That is terrible. That, that betrays a very, very low view of the word of God. The writer to the Hebrews isn't teaching one doctrine and the Apostle Paul and the Apostle John another. And when it comes to making an interpretive decision between two writers of Scripture, one biblical text or one particular author never beats or cancels another biblical text or author. Never. It, uh, biblical interpretation is not a cage match. So then... As Bible-believing Christians, how should we be thinking about apostasy and the seemingly contradictory statements we find scattered throughout the Bible about persevering in the faith? Well, think about this. The Apostle Paul, the same Apostle Paul who wrote the Golden Chain of Salvation text in Romans chapter 8, he can also entreat Christians to examine themselves and to verify if they are in the faith or not. 2 Corinthians 13.5. He's writing to Christians. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. That is the same man who said Christians are predestined to glorification from eternity past. 
And the Apostle John warns in chapter 15 of his gospel that branches in Christ may be cut off. Yet as we just read in chapter 6, the Apostle has already insisted that Jesus will preserve all whom the Father has given to him. It's not that these authors are contradicting themselves or one another. These are not embarrassing theological inconsistencies. It all aligns very well, and it's consistent throughout the whole Bible. All these writers understand that it's dangerously possible to start the Christian marathon of faith well. To make a fine show of the Christian life and Christian strength at the beginning of the race, but only faith which perseveres to the very end is genuine. A key text in the book of Hebrews, where this is a major theme, is Hebrews 3.14. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. A genuine believer is someone who sticks. And by the time we've come to the apostasy sections of chapter 6 and chapter 10 of Hebrews, the writer has already explained this to us. He's expecting us to remember chapter 3, verse 14, and to believe chapter 3, verse 14. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. So here's the question. Who is a Christian? Who shares in Christ? Who is a partaker of Jesus Christ? The answer is the one who perseveres to the very end. Biblical faith, by definition, is persevering faith. That's not to say the Bible teaches we're not entitled to any form of assurance of salvation until our ultimate perseverance has been demonstrated on that day when we're granted admittance into heaven. And then only then can we be absolutely certain our sins have been forgiven and we're citizens of God's kingdom. And until that day, we're being presumptuous if we believe such a thing. No, 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 not at all. The basis of Christian assurance is the finished work of Jesus Christ. His substitutionary, wrath-absorbing death. His resurrection from the grave and all of its gospel entailments. That's where our assurance lies. It's in the gospel. It's in the cross the finished work of Jesus Christ. But the failure to live a life of holy faithfulness serves to undermine assurance of salvation. It has to. D.A. Carson writes this, the Bible provides you with rich, thick, encouraging, beautiful assurance and promise as long as you are walking with Jesus. But the Bible is not interested in providing you with absolutist epistemological certainty when you're living in a fashion indistinguishable from the world, the flesh, and the devil. At that point, instead, the Bible gives warning and asks, in effect, are you really a Christian? If so, you will repent and return. And if not, God have mercy on your soul. And this, of course, is the concern of our sermon text today. If you look at your bulletin, you can see the lesson. Why is it so important 
for a Christian to continue living like one. Because our eternal life depends on it. Therefore, we must exercise self-control to flee from idolatry. We are not above falling. See Exhibit A, Israel. Look at your big picture. Paul sets forth Israel as those who failed to obtain the prize, even though they had their own form, their own type of baptism and Lord's Supper. All of them had these privileges. Nonetheless, God was displeased with most of them and their bodies were scattered over the desert. And I believe these last verses of chapter 9 serve as an introduction into chapter 10. You'll recall in this series of of 1 Corinthians, Paul is confronting various problems that the church is facing and he's at problem number 6 in verses 8 through, uh, chapters 8 through 10. Problem number 6 is... Uh, Some Corinthian Christians are eating food offered to idols in a way that stumbles their weaker brothers and sisters in Christ. That's in chapter 8. And or in chapter 10, in a way that is a fellowship with demons. So we're moving now, and this is the introduction, from the subjective idolatry of chapter 8. Idolatry someone believes to be idolatry due to a weak conscience even though it's not, to the objective kind of idolatry. The the kind of sin that, if persisted in, means eternal life is forsaken. If persisted in, the Corinthians would fail to obtain the prize, just like the first generation of Exodus Israelites failed to obtain the prize. That generation of Israelites began well. I mean, they, they were redeemed. That's the language that's used. They were redeemed from Egyptian slavery. And they experienced remarkable blessings from the pre-existent Christ himself. Paul says that. But most of them were disqualified. They never reached the final goal of the promised land, which is a picture of the new heavens and new earth. But before he comes to that biblical analogy, which will be our second point today, Paul begins with a metaphor from the world of sports. And if you're familiar with the writings of the Apostle Paul, you know that he often uses athletic analogies or athletic metaphors to illustrate spiritual truth. I I try my hand at this as well. I use typically World War II illustrations and film illustrations, but Paul seems to be something of a sports fan. It comes up over and over in his writings. So does anyone know? Does anyone want to take a guess? You can shout it out loud. Who's the runner? Who does the runner represent? The Christian. I heard that whispered. Very good. (laughs) And, And what's the race the runner is running? It's the Christian life, the whole Christian life. It's, and it's not a sprint, right? This is a marathon. And the prize, the crown, the runner receives when they cross the finish line is the culmination on the last day of the whole work of salvation. Everything God accomplished in the death and resurrection of Jesus with all of his implications. So we're thinking of resurrected, glorified, sinless bodies. We're thinking about the new heavens and new earth. We're talking about eternal life. Everything. And frequently in Paul's writings, as he alludes to this running metaphor, there's this picture of maximum effort. Maximum effort as the Christian moves ahead, always forward toward the finish line to seize the prize. 
Like many of you, I've read the New Testament cover to cover multiple times, but I have yet to find an analogy or a metaphor likening the Christian life to sitting in a bus and coasting down a hill in neutral. It's never that. It's always, the imagery is always that of striving. It's, it's of action, it's struggle, it's warfare. You're in a marathon. You know, press on, Christian. Take hold of the prize. Strain toward what is ahead. Participate in the suffering of Christ. Become like him in his death. Live up to what you've already obtained. Don't stagnate. Grow. Right? That's the picture. And essentially, that's the underlying picture of our passage this morning. Look at verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. In a race, everybody runs, but only one runner wins. So run, Christian, in order to win. Run to win. I remember I was in high school. That was, what was it? I can't remember what it is. No fear. They had this slogan where it's like, second place is first loser. You know, it's like, it's, it, it, it sounds, you know, it's, you know, but there's actually, there's a parallel here with this, where it's actually, you're running to win. Run to win. Uh, and so you can see our sermon title today. Run to win, persevere with self-discipline. Verse 25, everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. And the verb translated strict training has the meaning of to keep one's emotions, impulses, or desires under control, to control oneself, to abstain. The ESV translates that every athlete exercises self-control in all things. The NET Each competitor must exercise self-control in everything. The goal of winning, of getting that prize, determines an athlete's lifestyle, doesn't it? Michael Phelps, the most decorated Olympic athlete of all time, he has 23 gold medals. Unbelievable. I mean, if I had one, (laughs) I'd be cock of the walk. But he has 23. He, He had a training regimen that was out of this world. Have you ever seen this? I see it on Facebook once in a while. But he, he ate 12,000 calories a day. That's 4,000 calories per meal, five times the recommended daily calorie intake for a man. So here's Michael Phelps' breakfast. Three fried egg sandwiches with cheese, lettuce, tomatoes, fried onions, and mayonnaise. Two cups of coffee, one five-egg omelet, one bowl of porridge, three slices of sugar-coated French toast, three chocolate chip pancakes. That's just breakfast. Lunch, one pound of pasta, two large ham and cheese sandwiches with mayonnaise on white bread, energy drinks that supplied him with another 1,000 calories. And then dinner, one pound of pasta, an entire pizza, more energy drinks. And of course, there wasn't an ounce of fat on his body because he was swimming all the time. Six hours a day, six days a week averaging 13 kilometers per day of swimming, 80 kilometers per week of swimming. Ah. (laughs) The goal of winning determines an athlete's lifestyle. And Paul's saying, have the same same mindset, Christian. First century Olympic athletes had a reputation for strictly exercising self-control in sex and in diet. According to some accounts, the athletes swore an oath that they did not have sexual intercourse, eat meat, or drink wine for 10 months prior to the games. 
And these are the very issues that concern Paul in this section. Paul is exhorting the Corinthians to exercise self-control in sex and in diet, unlike most of the Israelites in the wilderness, which we'll come to in a moment. So look at verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. So do you see? Winning is what motivates the athlete to be so self-controlled. And the prize for winning an Olympic-type race in Paul's day was a wreath made of plant leaves. But that athletic wreath is perishable. 23 gold medals is perishable. But the prize for winning the gospel race of persevering to the very end is imperishable. It is eternal life with God himself. That is our eternal reward, which Paul contrasts in verse 27 with being disqualified. Verse 26, therefore, so that being the case, everything I've just said, therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. No, Paul runs the spiritual race with a fixed goal. Paul runs to win. Changing the metaphor to boxing now, Paul fights with skill. Verse 26b, I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. That is like an, an unskillful boxer who misses his mark. Like, woof, woof. You know, that's not what he's doing. Which means Paul's not racing or fighting against fellow Christians. Right? His opponent is his own body. And it's immoral desires, which must not control him. Verse 27, no, I strike a blow to my body. I, I pummel my body. You could translate that. And I make it my slave. He's using heavy language. So that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Now, don't misunderstand that. Paul doesn't physically torture himself in order to be more spiritual. He's using an athletic metaphor. He trains strictly so that he doesn't get kicked out of the race or the boxing match at the end. He exercises self-control so that he does not apostatize. That's what he's talking about. I exercise self-control so I don't abandon the faith. And brothers and sisters, if the Apostle Paul needs to exercise self-discipline to vigilantly run the race, if he has need to pummel his body, and make it his slave, how much more we? What do you think? Is Paul just going over the top? Is he just a hyperbolic kind of guy, exaggerating for effect to keep the little kitties on the narrow path? Or does he know whereof he speaks? Because the danger is real. I pummel my body and make it my slave that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. For example, if Paul didn't keep his body under control, he might engage in immoral sex. And the sexually immoral, that is, people for whom unrepentant immoral sex characterizes their life, 
the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. What do we read back in chapter 6, verse 9 and following? This is Pollock still. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Being disqualified from this race means being disqualified from inheriting the kingdom of God. So, before we move on to the next point, let me ask, Christian, is this warning and the promise of heaven's reward spurring you on to greater faithfulness in the midst of temptation? It must be. Pray to God that it would be. The danger is real, and the warning is real as well, as is the promise of eternal reward. Maybe you are flirting with the idea of leaving the church, throwing in the towel, turning your back on your Lord and Savior, giving in to family pressure, intellectual pressure, sexual pressure. Christian, keep your eye on the prize. Keep your eyes on your eternal reward, the imperishable crown of life. That will help motivate you to spiritual integrity when you're faced with the temptation not to persevere, when you're tempted to give up and to cash in your chips and abandon the faith. Because the climax of what God will accomplish in the death and resurrection of his son is still to come. It's still in the future. We haven't got it yet. You need to persevere so that when, you're done, when you've done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. In the present, in these last days, Christians enjoy many, many blessings. Sin forgiven, union with God's Son, the infilling of God the Holy Spirit. But our ultimate vindication, our ultimate transformation still lies ahead. The hope of the new heavens and new earth is still to come. The hope of resurrection body, it's still to come. And we have God's covenantal guarantee that if we persevere to the very end, we will receive what God has promised. Jesus Christ has triumphed, and he who promised is faithful. So, hold on swervingly to the faith you profess, Christian. Allow nothing to discourage you. Allow nothing to frighten you. Allow nothing to tempt you. And so keep you from finishing the race of faith, the marathon of faith. Keep looking forward to the certain hope Jesus has secured for all of his covenant people. Run to win. Persevere with self-discipline. Point number two, lessons from Israel's history. Now Paul argues with another example. He's not using athletics this time. Now it's, it's from Old Testament biblical history when the people of Israel compromised with idolatry, which then led to God's judgment. And what Paul does in this section is he uses typology. Now, you've heard me talk about typology many times before, but 
typology analyzes how New Testament persons and events and institutions, we call those antitypes, fulfill Old Testament persons and events and institutions, we call those types, by repeating the Old Testament situations at a deeper climactic level in salvation history. There's always, in typology, a ratcheting up. And the basis of typology is God's consistent activity in the history of his chosen people. So as you can see in the table at the bottom of your handout, uh, Israel in the wilderness is a type, and the Corinthian Christians are the antitype. And, And just a heads up, it's not my intention to get into the exegetical weeds on this. This passage is notorious. The, the, the way the typology is functioning in this text is very complex. And so, um, lest we miss the forest for the trees, I'm going to be painting with very broad strokes. Um, the backdrop to all of this, of course, is Israel's exodus from slavery in Egypt and their 40-year wandering in the wilderness. And and just as an aside, New City, um, notice how Paul assumes, and as he addresses a mostly Gentile church, only five years converted out of raw paganism, that these Christians are familiar with the events of the Egyptian exodus. And in a day when no one had their own copy of the scriptures. I think that means comparatively, we should be Old Testament scholars. We have have such a, a wealth Uh, Note the use of the word all in the first four verses. This is very important. In the Greek text, actually, that word occurs five times, emphasizing that God redeemed all the Israelites from Egypt, and they all had their own form, their own type of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Their spiritual resume was very impressive. But despite these amazing privileges, the Israelites sinned so grievously that God was displeased with both of them. So look at your handout, look at the lesson. Why is it so important for a Christian to continue living like one? Because our eternal life depends on it. Therefore, we must exercise self-control to flee from idolatry. We are not above falling. See exhibit A, Israel. And, and that's what Paul presents to us now. Exhibit A, Israel failed to run the race with self-discipline in the wilderness. And so God killed every adult Israelite except two, Caleb and Joshua. The danger is real. The warning is real. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. That's to say, the Israelites were figuratively baptized into Moses, the agent God used to deliver them from slavery, uh, who then mediated God's covenant to them. They were all under his authority. They were all in his camp. Similarly, Christians are baptized into Christ, who delivers us from the slavery of sin, we're redeemed, and who mediates to us the new covenant. We're all now under his authority. We're all in his camp. Verse 3, they all ate the same spiritual food, the manna that God provided in the wilderness, and all, in the Greek text, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. And this cryptic 
sounding reference at the end of verse 4 about the spiritual rock is an aside that explains what Paul means in verse 4 by they all drank the same spiritual drink. If you know the biblical uh, history, you know that God supernaturally provided food and drink for Israel in the wilderness. And Paul refers to a spiritual rock that he identifies as Christ. The Old Testament metaphorically refers to God as the rock. And here, Paul specifies that Israel's rock was the pre-existent Christ, who was with them in the wilderness, not only to provide food and water, but also to punish those who put him to the test. We see that in verse 9. So if you look at that little table, a little chart in your handout, you have type, Israel in the wilderness, antitype, Christian. So baptism into Moses, baptism into Christ. Manna and water, the Lord's Supper, bread and wine. Israel under the old covenant experiences Christ's presence. The church under the new covenant experiencing Christ's presence in a superior way. Now, it, it goes without saying there is a ton of complexity in this. Um, and I don't pretend to have the definitive answer on all of this. Uh, but this I do know, is these are the broad strokes I'm painting with. This I do know, Paul's primary concern is to turn the Corinthians away from their reckless association with idolatry, objective idolatry. He wants to show how closely what they're doing in Corinth parallels Israel's lunacy in spurning their rock of salvation by mixing idolatrous practices with their worship of God. Because if the Corinthians continue on in this way, they can expect the same disastrous consequences that befell Israel. And if the Corinthians were to counter, no, 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 our, our situation is totally different uh, because we've received Christ's benefits, then Paul would respond, so did the Israelites. Most of Israel was disqualified, even though all the people experienced remarkable blessings from the pre-existent Christ. He wants them to recognize the direct parallel between Israel's situation and their own, so that they, they swerve from this destructive path that they're on, this path of objective idolatry and fellowship with demons. We'll look at that in more detail next week, but this is the setup for that. Just quickly, look at chapter 10, verse 14. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. Verse 18, consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean then that food sacrificed to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. And that, that's what they're doing, though. This is serious business. And so now, in verses 7 to 10, Paul warns the Corinthian Christians not to repeat Israel's idolatry. Christ destroyed the idolatrous Israelites physically in the wilderness. He killed them. And Paul warns the Corinthians now that in Christ, that Christ will destroy them spiritually if sin disqualifies them. So look at verse 6. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. So that's, think of a bookend, like a bookshelf. That's one bookend right there. The other bookend is in verse 11. 
These things, he says again, happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. And everything in between these two bookends is these things, these examples, these warnings, which means, and we can actually, I think, brothers and sisters, take this understanding into our our daily devotions as we read God's word. The Old Testament provides New Testament Christians with examples to keep us from pursuing evil things. From God's perspective, the Old Testament books were not meant simply for those who read them when they were first written, but for us who live at this moment in salvation history when the first installment of the promises of the ages is being experienced. Therefore, implicitly, it's all the more shocking if we, who have received so much instruction, so much warning from ages past, should ignore this wealth of privilege that is ours. It was written down for us as a, to be a warning for us, to be an encouragement to us. Because in our blindness, I think we sometimes believe that, we, well, we, I think we marvel at how, um, how Old Testament figures and groups could just so quickly, quickly abandon the godly heritage and covenant they'd received. We're just astonished by it. But how much worse if we do so? And we're in danger of doing that. That's why Paul's writing this. How much more foolish are we, we who have the privilege of living in these last days, when God has spoken to us by his Son? Hebrews 1, 2. When we rebel against God by turning to idolatry and immoral sex, testing Christ, and grumbling. Those are the sins that he lists here. Because those are the example sins, the warnings between those two bookends. Idolatry, immoral sex, testing Christ, grumbling. Verse 7, do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. And this, of course, is a reference to the golden calf fiasco of Exodus 32. Israel's idolatry with the golden calf flagrantly breaches the covenant with Yahweh. Verse 8, we should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did referring to the incident in Numbers 25 and Israel's participation in gross sexual immorality with Moabite women. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. Verse 9, we should not test Christ as some of them did. You see, actually, Old Covenant Israel tested Christ, right, the preexistent Christ, and were killed by snakes. Alluding to Numbers 21, where the Israelites spoke against God, criticizing him, criticizing his provision, complaining in particular about a lack of food and water. Verse 10, and do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. Now, how typology works is the type escalates. It's ratcheted up to the antitype. And here, physical death in the Old Testament, so their bodies being scattered in the wilderness in verse 5, 23 dying in a single day, verse 8, killed by snakes, verse 9, killed by the destroying angel, verse 10. Physical death is ratcheted up to eternal damnation in the New Testament. Idolatry and other sins disqualified Israel from entering into the promised land. And Paul warns the Corinthians 
to persevere lest idolatry and other sins disqualify them too from receiving eternal life. The danger is real. The warning is real. The implication is clear. Even though the Corinthian Christians enjoy redemption and baptism and the Lord's Supper, they must vigilantly persevere lest they too be disqualified. They too must flee from idolatry. Verse 12. So, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. And it might be wise, it's definitely wise, to stop there for a moment and for all of us to consider our own lives, our own professions of faith in Jesus Christ in light of God's word, what the Apostle Paul has just taught us here. Verse 12, brothers and sisters, is not a verse we want to be skimming over in haste. It's like, come on, John, it's been a bit long. I've got to roast in the oven. We've got to go. It's like, no, think about verse 12 a lot. Yes, you know, to actually say, yes, yes, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm saved as saved can be. Christian, do you think you are standing firm in the faith? Then this verse is for you. Right? This verse is for me. I, I do believe I'm standing firm in the faith. So that means this verse is for me. The Apostle Paul is warning us, and it's a real warning. It's not just a rhetorical flourish. Since most of the Israelites in the wilderness were disqualified from the race, despite all the ways in which God delivered them and provided for them, Christians today who think they stand should be careful not to fall. That means, Jill, you need to take heed lest you fall. That means, Freddie, you need to take heed lest you fall. Cindy, that means you need to take heed lest you fall. I need to take heed lest I fall. We must never, ever, ever assume that the race is essentially over. That there's really no need to vigilantly exercise self-discipline. And that there's no way that we could actually be disqualified. Brother, sister... Never think that you're so mature that you can't fall. If you think you could never succumb to adultery, you're in danger. It means you don't have your guard up. Moreover, there's an intrinsic arrogance that's dangerous when we say, I'm so mature that couldn't happen to me. No, if we're mature, then we don't think like that. Because it means we're no longer leaning on the grace of God. It means we're no longer praying, lead us not into temptation. Instead, we're saying, I've arrived. Spiritually, I've arrived. Don't be arrogant, Christian. Refuse to stand on your past spiritual triumphs. Never be satisfied with yesterday's grace. Instead, be like Paul in Philippians chapter 3, eagerly straining forward to the glories to come. Just just listen to the already not yet awareness of the apostle in this passage. Philippians 3.12, just listen. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. 
Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So you see, this is where it starts. This is where it begins. Do you want to be a mature Christian? Do you want to cross the finish line and receive that prize on the final day? Then it all begins with an awareness that you're not there yet. It begins with an awareness that you haven't arrived yet. Our knowledge of Christ is imperfect. We still have much to learn. There is much remaining corruption in our hearts to weed out, much to yield over to the power of the Holy Spirit. It starts, brothers and sisters, with humility, with making a right estimate of our spiritual state. Let me, let me be candid, friends. If you've come to the place where you feel satisfied, if you've come to the place where you think you can more or less put the bus in neutral and coast down the hill, where you can just assume the gospel, which you've tucked away like a fire insurance policy in your breast pocket, then you are in a deadly, dangerous, perilous condition. If you're as holy as you care to be, if you know Jesus as well as you wish to, if you've had enough prayer and enough church and enough teaching of the word of God and enough Christian fellowship to satisfy you, that means you're not pursuing the prize with all your might. You're coasting. And make no mistake about it, Satan makes mincemeat of people like that. Hell is full of people just like that. What's the Apostle Paul doing? Is he coasting through the Christian life, piously intoning, once saved, always saved? He's just told us. I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I run to win. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. I pummel my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Move forward. Press on. Strain for that prize. The New Testament insists that the God who has called his people to his new covenant works powerfully in us to conform us to the likeness of his Son. The New Testament insists that the Holy Spirit, in a continuous, gracious, sovereign, sanctifying work, empowers God's new covenant people to produce spiritual fruit. And that glorious truth needs to become both an incentive to press on in the faith, picking up our cross, following Jesus daily in death, pressing on in, in fearful, trembling obedience, and it needs to be a challenge to those who cry out, Lord, Lord, but do not do what God commands. Don't be arrogant. Instead, verse 13 have confidence in God's protection, and with this we'll close. Verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. 
And here, Paul provides two reasons why someone is responsible if he or she falls. Number one, every temptation we experience to apostatize is common to mankind. Temptations such as idolatry, immoral sex, testing Christ, and grumbling. You're not experiencing anything unique when you experience that temptation. It's common to us all. And second, God is faithful. So if we fall, that means we cannot blame God. The problem is with ourselves. God will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we can handle, but will provide a way to escape every temptation so that we can endure it. And those two reasons should both caution and encourage Christians at the same time. They, they warn us to persevere, lest we be disqualified from the prize. And they reassure us that God will not allow a uniquely powerful temptation to overwhelm any of us. And so with all of this now under our belts, we're ready to tackle what Paul writes in the remainder of chapter 10, which we'll look at next week, Lord willing.